I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, so today we uh, we're going to dive into pulmonary embolisms. Um, we're going to kind of break this up. Um, Jason, I think it's a pretty good idea that we kind of we kind of break this up into a few episodes like we've talked about. What do you think? Yeah, I think this is something that, uh, you know, it's one of those things that's just been around for a really long time, but develop better systems of care. I think this is one of the ones that can really make a difference with across the spectrum. So I think kind of digging in uh, deep on uh, several levels would be really good. Yeah. And I think this first episode, it would be great just to kind of introduce what truly is a PE. Um, you know, I think paramedic students in particular, you know, they have maybe a, a one dimensional view of PE, uh, but maybe our more um, more seasoned um, listeners probably have a better idea of it. So let's uh, I, th- I think this first episode would be really good to talk about the patho and to really identify everything that could be going on. What do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, if, if people think back to uh, initial education um, and, you know, you'd be able to speak to this better um, than anybody. But, you know, this is often uh, something that's just kind of hidden in slides during your medical, uh, you know, your medical lectures, maybe a little bit in your cardiovascular lectures and, um, you know, in a differential diagnosis versus, uh, you know, ch- you know, chest pain from a PE versus, you know, cardiac chest pain. But I think it's something that gets kind of glossed over um, and we haven't really understood it as well as we should. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great I like the way you said that. Um, it's it's definitely something in initial education that we learn for a test. Um, we learn the the very superficial amount of information required um, to just know what it is. But we truly, I don't think we spend enough time. We don't give it enough appreciation to be able to actually diagnose one. Um, which, of course, you know, this is something that it's very difficult, nearly impossible to diagnose in the field. But I think that perhaps we could give a little greater appreciation and let people have a little higher index of suspicion about PEs. Yeah, I think, too, there as I've progressed in my career, I think uh, even thinking back to initial education, I had a lot of misconceptions about pulmonary embolism, didn't didn't truly understand it. Uh, you know, we, we teach it in ways that uh, may be a little too basic to really truly grasp um what's going on with it you know sometimes we we either underplay it or we blow it out of proportion and we we think uh, we start treating the wrong things mm. um you know so we, we start thinking that it, things are happening in ways that they're really not so that our focus treatment may or may not be beneficial so i think that'd be a kind of a good thing for us to jump into yeah absolutely um well you know as we start you know i just when we were talking about doing this subject, anytime somebody says pulmonary embolism, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but the first, like, I remember my first cardiac arrest. I remember my first gunshot patient. I definitely remember my first PE patient. I don't know if it's like that for you, but everything that the book talked about, it was right there. Everything my instructors talked about, I was like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. This is textbook perfect um yeah i don't really remember the first one um I, I remember um you know a couple that didn't kill them 
mm. you know, that turned out to be uh, pretty bad PEs later. You know, of course, we all hear about the, you know, purple from the nipple lineup or or whatever is likely a PE, you know, whether that's true or not. That's what a lot of people just kind of end up, yeah, you know, kind of kind of using as, a, oh, we didn't get them back because it was probably a, mm -hmm. a PE. Yeah. Um, but I think it's definitely as we go through this, I think it'll definitely bring to mind uh, some cases uh, from a lot of people to go. Yeah, I think that probably was a P.E. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I just didn't really uh, recognize it can because it can be subtle or mm -hmm. or like a lot of things. We think we can have a definitive diagnosis um, and we'll kind of talk through on how we actually do a definitive diagnosis um, and then how we treat them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me tell you the story about uh, the first one that I saw, because to me, it's really the my story or not my story, but the uh, clinical experience that I had was significant because of the patient population, you know, um, and the presentation. So essentially, you know, this was back in paramedic school. We were doing team leads. We were trying to get out. Right. We were at the very end of our program. Um, it was Christmas Eve. I had to do clinical on Christmas Eve because I couldn't, you know, I was doing shift swaps and everything. But anyway, uh, we were working. Man, that's out. hardcore. <laughs> yeah. You know, my uh, my clinical coordinator, Miss Pat, she loved getting phone calls on Christmas Eve about my clinical experience. <laughs> wow. Because <laughs> I did call her about this. It was just it just blew my mind. But anyway, uh, I was riding with a service that's in the metro Atlanta area. Um, and around nine o'clock in the morning, we got dispatched to a private residence. It was a 32 year old female. Uh, she was pregnant and she was experiencing difficulty in breathing. So we're, you know, I'm in the back of the ambulance, I'm flipping through my stuff. I'm just like, all right, this is my, it's going to be my call. I'm going to, you know, I'm probably just going to give her a breathing treatment, transport her to an OB or an L and D facility, blah, blah, blah. So when we got there, um, as soon as we walked in, I mean, as soon as we walked into the door of the apartment, I saw her in the kitchen collapse and I saw her head bounce off of the kitchen floor. I was like, oh my gosh, okay, so this is ridiculous. Um, my preceptor starts asking the husband questions. Uh, obviously, he's scattered, he's freaking out, he's, he's nervous, he's trying to calm down the kids. You know, like, I don't know how old the kids were. They were definitely like 10, maybe less. Uh, but he, he, I did hear him saying she's been on bed rest. Last night, she started coughing. It was a dry cough. She was talking about it was hard to breathe. This morning when she got up, it has gotten significantly worse. She's been pale. She's been sweaty. Her lips have been blue. And I'm sitting over there thinking like, oh, my gosh, this is a freaking PE. Like, this has PE written all over it. Um, throw in the back of the bus, we're transporting emergency, um, to a, uh, L and D surgical center. That was a, uh, difficult decision. Um, very little knowledge of the area had to think about, uh, OB resources, but anyway, intubate the patient and start to see like pink frothy spew, almost like, almost like CHF kind of. Um, not quite as intense, but that was actually returning through the tube. So I'd, I'd never seen that before in a normal, healthy patient. Um, anyway, ultimately, uh, she had a massive saddle PE. Um, and again, you know, thinking back to what I know now, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of a no brainer. Yeah. Out of curiosity, do you remember how the crew was? Were they kind of headed down that same, was that conversation with the crew that you were working with or, you know, oftentimes, um, 
you know, with, with PE and we'll, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this. There's a lot of uh, red herrings there, you know, so you start talking mm. about, oh, it's, you know, you get kind of tunnel vision on pregnancy or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a leg fracture or something like that. The cause of the PE rather than the actual PE, was there discussion oh, from man. them that that was a likely differential diagnosis? So to be 100% completely transparent, no. Um, <laughs> my preceptor was recently graduated from paramedic school. Um, and was as equally, uh, excited as I was. So, you know, we were working the, we were working in arrest. I didn't say that she was in cardiac arrest. We uh, brought somebody from the fire unit or fire engine in with us. Um, I was working the airway and he was essentially focused on calling in the report, but I will say this about the receiving facility. As soon as we backed in, um, the L and D surgical team was at the door at the, at the ER bay and they hopped up on the stretcher and they were doing compressions the entire way to surgery. Um, it was, uh, it was pretty intense. So to answer your question, I don't think so. I don't think that pulmonary embolism was going through his mind. I think he was just trying to make sure that he was appropriately working the arrest and calling the receiving facility. Cause I think we had like a six minute transport. It wasn't long at all. Um, so we got her there pretty quick, but yeah, it ended up being a, a massive saddle. Interesting. That kind of goes back to, I think a little bit of, uh, you know, simulations and, and, and things like that, uh, patient mm. simulations in initial and continuing education. I think that's the, you know, oftentimes, you know, the difference between a, a program or a, a process that's just trying to get you to pass a test rather mm. than actually think and think outside the box, yeah. Um, you know, kind of throwing in those curveballs or those things. And then, uh, you know, maybe people are think, oh, those are just uh, ridiculous made up situations. So this is obviously an example of right of one that uh, the patient uh, kind of read the book on <laughs> on all of the the things to throw at you and yeah. um, to be able to make that differential diagnosis, at least. Yeah. And, you know, I'd been on the job for a while, but that hit me hard enough because I'm like, man, it's Christmas Eve. I can, like I'm sitting there looking at her, her, the younger kids. And, uh, I, I really did. I called my, uh, called my instructor called, uh, called the clinical coordinator. I was just like, dude, listen to what just happened. Um, cause I think we had just finished special populations, but yeah, it was, it was pretty ridiculous. Uh, so then also out of curiosity, did you get follow-up on that patient or did you know, um, what it was and what the outcome was? Uh, so I had to call. I ended up kind of pursuing it. And uh, I, again, I called my clinical coordinator and she followed up for me, which was pretty awesome. Um, It made me, I was very thankful that she was able to do that. Um, But yeah, we, uh, unfortunately the patient did pass um, and the, uh, the, the, uh, the child was uh, not viable as well, but. uh, How far along was she? Did you say that? Oh, I didn't say it, but she was right around 30 weeks. So oh, wow. it was, yeah, it was pretty later on in the process and, you know, and I knew, and I know that we'll talk about this later on, but I knew that, um, during pregnancy or post-pregnancy postpartum, um, you know, uh, mothers are, are higher, you know, they have a higher risk of any type of thrombus, you know, whether it be a DVT or an embolus, um, but I didn't really think about during the stages and whenever, you know, thinking back to that call when he told us she's been on bed rest, I'm just like, Oh man, (laughs) pregnancy being a hypercoagulable state, she's on bed rest. 
probably has hypertension. You know, it's just like, geez, perfect. Yeah, kind of per- checks all the boxes. And- yeah, perfect storm. Let's uh, let's introduce our our method to our madness here. <laughs> what we're going to do with these, uh, hopefully, about three episodes. Um, I think with this episode, um, what what everybody should expect. Essentially, we're going to explain. Hope we're going to try to explain the the pathophysiology, epidemiology, and uh, the current pre-hospital diagnostics that are available to us uh, for pulmonary embolism. So, Jason, what are we uh, what are we going to talk about in the next episode? You know, I think like a lot of things. Um, you know, we can go after the diagnosis or the differential diagnosis. You want to be pretty clear that we can't diagnose this in the field. This is not a you know, not a thing like a STEMI or or maybe even a stroke that uh, you can have a pretty clear diagnosis. We cannot be definitive on this. We can have a really, um, you know, high index of suspicion and we can get pretty close um, and we can get accurate with that. And that's great. But if we don't take that to the next level, then, you know, really, we haven't done the patient any good. Um, so I think really what we got to dive into is how do we actually make the diagnosis? Where does that patient go to get the definitive diagnosis? Um, whether that's through, um, you know, imaging, most likely, um, but some of the other labs and stuff that uh, we'll talk about, but then the treatment, because uh, the treatment is actually moving pretty quickly. Um, the kind of the t- tip of the spear with this um, that we will talk about is uh, our, our teams called PERT teams. Um, so pulmonary embolus response teams. This is something that uh, hospitals are really going after. And uh, so when they get an alert in from the field, they're actually alerting uh, alerting a specialized team made up of uh interdisciplinary group of uh, physicians and coordinators and other ancillary staff. Um, but really it's made up of, uh, of ED, uh, cardiology, radiology, vascular. Um, and so a lot of hospitals are really taking this on as a very important and very specific um, issue because we can treat this. It is treatable, uh, but time, uh, timing is of the essence. So I think, uh, you know, we can show where pre-hospital can kind of come into that and really be a part of that. Um, but we have to, like in a lot of things, you know, we said it a million times, we have to function within this system of care. And just because we get a diagnosis right, um, if we don't take the patient to the correct hospital that can treat them, then, you know, really, uh, what's the point? You know, I think this this also goes back to, um, you know, I'll, I'll just get on my soapbox for for just a second of what makes an ALS call. What makes mm. a call that needs a paramedic? Um, this is not a uh, this is not a patient where you're going to use an advanced skill on mm. um, unless they arrest and then it's no longer you know essentially a PE. It's a cardiac <laughs> arrest. But this is one of those that um, you know what is the expertise here and it's in the assessment. Uh, like a lot of things that we talk about and a lot of things that we do, uh, it's it's the assessment, it's the destination decision, it's the communication um, all become really important. Uh, but when we do this, uh, this is a very survivable um, problem that uh, otherwise would not be. Yeah, and that's that's quite encouraging. Um, that's very, very encouraging. And then uh, so after we talk about that, after that next episode, we will uh, we will bring the audience, a, uh, an expert. So we're going to interview an expert on pulmonary embolism care, um, maybe get some more insight on the PERT teams, but also talk about some of the, uh, the current therapies and some therapies that are kind of heading down our heading down uh, into the future um, for PE.
And I'll also say, just because this is a pet peeve of mine, I know PERT team, the T in PERT is team. So I know it's like ATM machine, but sorry, everyone says PERT team. So we'll just put that disclaimer out there. A ATM machine, that's right. <laughs> Automated teller machine machine. <laughs> ASAP is possible. <laughs> so I got I got a shout out to our mutual friend, Russell Sykes. Uh, whenever we would teach together, and uh, especially during EMT and advanced EMT, you know, everybody's memorizing that that secondary assessment, super hardcore, um, you know, DCAP, BLS, and tick, and blah, 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 blah. And they would look up at him, and they say, are the pupils pearl? Oh, yeah. And he would say, yes, the pupils are pupils, and they're equal round of reactive delight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just get that out of the way. Per team is the common term. Yes, I know T stands for team. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. So let's... uh let's jump in here Let, let's talk about the uh, major classifications of pe um let's get the big one out of the way that absolutely terrifies me um i mean because dude after looking into this man i don't know about you this is absolutely terrifying you can you can go according to everything that i read coming up to this episode man you can go a long time building up these thrombus or these uh these emboli in your lungs and not even know it until you just have till the big one yeah dude that's terrifying and you're not immune no one's immune from it no no that's exactly right i mean there's you know as we as we'll talk through there's a lot of risk factors that make it you make it more susceptible than others but for the most part this could happen to any of us yeah absolutely so uh so perhaps let's start off with the big one uh, the massive PE, massive pulmonary embolus. Um, so obviously, um, when we say massive, it is what it sounds like. So it may not necessarily be massive in the sense of how physically large it is, but it's technically characterized by a systemic. So we have shock-like symptoms, right? So we have systemic hypotension or a drop in systolic pressure of at least 40 millimeters of mercury for at least 15 minutes. Um, and specifically, that's not caused by a new onset arrhythmia or shock. Um, but uh, this is the part of PE that has a very high mortality rate currently, despite all the advanced diagnosis and all the therapies that we have out there. Yeah, so so look at it, you know, I think we can look at it this way. And if we kind of back up, um, this is actually something I would encourage people to go back and listen to uh, the episode we did on ECMO with Dr. DuPont. Um, you know, as we talk through some of this treatment, ECMO is going to be a treatment for this eventually, but it's not because of the oxygenation. So, you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions on what actually happens with the pulmonary embolism that they think, you know, people think, oh, it's really an oxygenation problem. It, it can be, but that's not typically what you, you know, what you die from or what what causes the symptoms other than, you know, of course, some of the, uh, you know, the cyanosis and, and that kind of stuff. But that's not uh, necessarily unique to the pulmonary embolus. So mm. take us through, Brandon, real quick on kind of the what happens, what's actually happening with uh, a pulmonary embolism. Um, you know, what are, what are some of the misconceptions that, uh, that you've seen with students or you've seen people come back with continuing education? Mm. Um, you know, they, 
you know, we talk about blood, you know, blood clots, whatever it's, you know, it's a thrombus and we have thrombus in our coronary arteries. We have thrombus in our brain and we have thrombus in our pulmonary artery. And certainly they're all the same, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so essentially this is one thing that I always, that I hate hearing just because not because people, it not because it makes me uh, appreciate people less, but for the fact that, um, this truly can be a confusing analogy and it, it can lead to, you know, somebody doesn't understand and then they try to teach somebody else who doesn't understand. That's not good. So whenever I hear people say, oh, the, a pulmonary embolism is just an MI of the lungs. That is not true. That is not true at all. In fact, there's actually, there really is an MI of the lungs. There's a pulmonary infarction, which is very, very different uh, from a pulmonary embolism. Um, so embol an embolism or an emboli, essentially that is a thrombus that has broken loose and is floating through the bloodstream waiting to land somewhere. Um, and so pulmonary embolism or pulmonary emboli have essentially lodged somewhere in the pulmonary arterial circuit. So obviously, um, you know, we're talking about leaving the right ventricle going into the pulmonary arterial circuit, whether it's right there at where we call the saddle, which is, it is what it sounds like. A saddle pulmonary embolus is going to um, occlude both right and left. It's going to kind of ride it like a saddle. Um, but essentially, one of the big issues is that it prevents blood flow to the alveoli, ultimately impairing gas exchange. But the part that I really want Jason to dive into, because he's he, he knows a lot about the heart, just a little bit, um, is the, the hemodynamics and the, and the hypotension that occurs because of what goes on with the right ventricle. If you think about something blocking, especially in, in the case of a massive PE, if we have something blocking the blood flow, we have increased pulmonary artery pressure, and then all of that blood is just going to back up. So Jason, kind of take us whenever that blood backs up into the right ventricle, how is that of detriment to, uh, to our normal physiology? So I think the first thing you have to look at and we have to remind ourselves of is the purpose of the right ventricle. Uh, you know, its purpose is to pump blood from the right ventricle to the lungs. I mean, it's it's a very short distance. Um, it's not, uh, you know, it's not a lot of area that it's going to. Uh, and so it's constructed a lot differently than the left ventricle. So a left ventricle, you know, say has to pump blood, you know, to your baby toenail. Um, and everywhere in between. So it has to be massive. So the the actual, you know, the the muscle structure is actually different in the left ventricle than it is the right ventricle. You know, we often think of the differences, well, the left, the right ventricle uh, has has less uh, myocardium. It has, it's, it's not as thick. And that's true because it does not have to pump as, uh, you know, as far. Um, but the, the, the muscle fibers are actually structured differently. Um, you know, it's, it, it doesn't really matter a, a whole lot uh, to us, but to really understand this, you know, if we think about the left ventricle, um, the, the muscle fibers are actually parallel to each other. And that's good because it can withstand a lot of pressure or um, something that I think, you know, as will probably a term that you'll hear a lot uh, as we go through this is strain. Um, and so as this, mu as this muscle is strained, it, 
it's going to act differently. So when a left ventricle is strained, the way that the fibers are, um, it's not as impacted as much because these fibers are thick. Uh, the, the way that they're structured, um, it can overcome that. The right ventricle, the fibers are actually in series. Um, and it mean, and it's more compliant. Now, what that means is uh, the more, when, when something is compliant, uh, you can think of compliancy as uh, as a balloon. So if you take a uh, a regular balloon that you would give that you would have at a uh, you know at a birthday party, as you put more air into that balloon, the balloon gets bigger. So that balloon is compliant. The more volume you put in the balloon, the more that that stretches. Now, the more that that stretches, the more strain that's on there, the weaker those walls get. And so as you get bigger, as you get that balloon bigger and bigger and bigger, the walls actually get thinner. So that's compliant. If we talk about something that's not compliant, think of like a two liter bottle. You can put the same amount of volume inside of a two liter bottle that you can inside of a regular a compliant balloon, but a, 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 a two liter bottle is not compliant. So the pressure will build, but the wall of that of that will essentially be unchanged. Um, so that's kind of like the left ventricle. So the right ventricle, as it's compliant, as more as volume increases inside that left ventricle, uh, that right ventricle, it can no longer, it cannot function like it normally does. So imagine it's, it's pumping at about 25 millimeters of mercury normally to get to the lungs. But now, uh, you know, brand, now we've got this PE. So now we've got all of this stuff clogging up where it's pumping the blood. So it can, so in order to overcome that, essentially, you know, we understand afterload, right? You know, with afterload with the, with the left ventricle, the, uh, you know, the, the pressure that the left ventricle has to overcome to pump. Uh, to eject blood uh, out of the ventricle. So the same thing happens in the right ventricle. So as that as that pressure builds up inside the pulmonary arteries, that right ventricle now has to overcome that pressure. As that now, you know, the, remember the, the left ventricle is pumping blood out. It's going around the aorta through the venous system, up through the uh, vena cava, and it's filling up that right ventricle just as it does normally with a regular blood pressure. Yet now the right, the right uh, ventricle is starting to expand and it can no longer pump through. This is really where the problems come from. So if we can't pump blood through there, now we can't get blood back around to our left ventricle for cardiac output. So now our cardiac output goes down. Um, and then, you know, we get this, uh, you know, just massive amounts of right side of right heart failure. Mm -hmm. But because the way that the right ventricle is made and it is so dependent on preload, um, because remember, preload is the stretching of the myocardium. It's not it's not necessarily the volume, but kind of going back to that balloon, as that balloon increases, uh, as, as you blow, put more air in that balloon, the walls stretch and get weaker and weaker. The left ventricle can overcome that for a while. The right ventricle cannot, and it can fail uh, very, very quickly. So that's where we see the hypotension. That's where we see um, a lot of these signs of shock that happen uh, right away. That was very well put. Um, you know, I could sit there and I, I really like those analogies too between the two liter bottle and the balloon. I mean, that, you know, that's, that's perfect. That's just how my simple mind works. Simple. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got to think things very simply. <laughs> uh -huh. Jason's a robot, everyone. <laughs> the J1000.
Um, so with everything that Jason just talked about with that right ventricular failure, you know, that's where we get things like acute core pulmonale. Um, so that is typically consistent with uh, clinical manifestation, manifestation of right ventricular failure. And also, you know, you can have signs and symptoms during a massive PE of a murmur, a systolic murmur. Um, and so think about it when Jason was talking about the blood backing up from the pulmonary artery back up to the tricuspid valve, that's totally why we have tricuspid regurgitation and we will have that, uh, that murmur. Um, but again, obviously if you are measuring it, you can also have increased, uh, central venous pressure that could be displayed by things like increased JVD, um, and backups throughout the system. Um, primarily difference or primarily the difference between a massive and a submassive um, is think about the same situation as a massive PE. Um, we have the same type of risk factors. We have the same uh, large embolus. However, the patient's still hemodynamically stable. So we have an embolus. Um, but we still have enough blood flow in order to not put as much strain on that right ventricular failure, or excuse me, that right ventricle. We still have it though. We still have strain on that right ventricle, but it's not quite as bad to cause the systemic hypotension. Um, we uh, typically we have signs of right ventricular dysfunction, not necessarily failure. Um, yeah, I think the other thing with that is, uh, you know, I can remember when I was, I, I can't remember, I don't think I was a student then, I think I was working and uh, took a patient to the ED and uh, pretty like, most likely was a sub, you know, well, well, I guess this wasn't as bad. And he said, well, uh, and, and the ED doc said, well, obviously that one didn't kill him, but the next one might. Mm. And so, you know, I think that was, that was kind of a light bulb moment for me too, of like, oh yeah, you're not out of the woods. Um, it's that next one behind you. Uh, behind this submassive uh, PE that uh, actually could kill you. So you kind of dodge the bullet on this one, but you have no idea kind of what's uh, lurking downstream. Dude, that's terrifying. That's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> that's, it's like, and everybody listening to this, you know, they're just sitting there thinking like, especially if you post, if you work for a service where there's posting, it's like, oh, yeah. okay, I'm going to stand up and walk around the next time I'm at my post for longer than 30 minutes. Um, but anyway, uh, so from there, you know, so th those two situations, just kind of to recap, you know, we have a massive PE, which is a large clot causes massive hypotension, massive mortality. Then we have a submassive, which is still large. It's a large embolus, but the patient is still stable. And like Jason just talked about, you know, that's a really good, that's a good point and a good analogy, you know, that they missed this one. Or this one missed them, but maybe the the next one will get them. Uh, from there, we have subacute massive. So we call it. It's still a large collection, but we're calling it subacute because it could take a longer amount of time to develop. So essentially, we have a very large amount of small emboli that are all collecting together in the same place. So, um, or we have a collection of small emboli that are collecting in the pulmonary bed. So with that to say, this can take, this can take maybe a week or two to, to come up or to start showing symptoms. 
but potentially, um, this is uh, this is something that should be in the back of everybody's mind whenever you have somebody with, especially patients who have the risk factors that we're going to be talking about experiencing, you know, exertional dyspnea uh, that is specific to a to a period a time period of one or two weeks. Um, and so essentially a subclass of that, we have CTEF, uh, which this is a chronic form of subacute massive PE, essentially. So chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension um, is caused by blood clots that don't dissolve in the lungs. So these clots can essentially cause scar-like tissue uh, that clogs up or it narrows the small blood vessels in the lungs, causing an increase in right ventricular and pulmonary artery pressure. Yeah, and these are going to be your patients, your more kind of long-term heart failure patients. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so Jason, you know, I know you were talking about the PERT teams, um, or PERT. PERT. <laughs> PERT team. Uh, PERT. The, the PERT team. Yeah, it needs to have a cat mascot, the PERT team. I know you would love that. Um, so anyway, uh, take us through, you know, you were talking about the the need for this. Do you mind taking us through the uh, the epidemiology? You know, what's the, how big of a problem is PE, you know? Because a lot of people think that it's not really that big of a deal. Well, it doesn't happen that often. Yeah, I, I think that's probably like, uh, you know, people that, that just use it from their experience. Like for instance, like, uh, you know, strokes. Well, I don't run a lot of calls with strokes, which is mm. not that big of a problem. Um, you know, I think like anything else, we have to understand this from, from epidemiology and who are those at risk? You know, there are certainly communities that have a higher risk of PEs than others, but this is, mm. this is actually a pretty significant, significant problem. So this is about 600,000 cases a year, uh, in the United States, which is, which is pretty substantial. Now, I think a lot of those, you know, we don't come into contact with in the pre-hospital setting mm. because most uh, PEs are not acute. Most are, you know, patients with DVTs or, you know, uh, patients that are at, at high risk. And, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, kind of like we said, um, how it how it manifests itself, you know, like anything else, it has to be pretty big for someone to call 911. And then, you know, so any one uh, paramedic is not going to necessarily come into contact with this, you know, several times a month. You know, you mm -hmm. probably have uh, individually, you'll have several of these a year, but at 600,000 cases a year, this is pretty big. You know, this is, there's about 400,000 STEMIs mm -hmm. a year. There's about 375,000 cardiac arrests a year. Um, so this, this is a pretty substantial uh, thing that we, you know, wow. as healthcare that we need to take on. And the good thing is it's very preventable. Um, this is one of the things that, uh, you know, another soapbox, we just don't do well in Western medicine of preventing things. Right. Um, you know, so even when we do, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, kind of like, oh, what do you have? Do you have high blood pressure? No, I, no, I don't have high blood pressure. I take medicine for it. Like, <laughs> No, yeah. you, yeah, you have high blood pressure. Um, so, so we have things, you know, we have all these anti, anticoagulation, uh, new anticoagulations that we can uh, talk about, but, um, you know, so about 45% of these patients with acute PE have right heart failure, uh, right ventricular mm -hmm. failure. 
uh, and about uh, you know about four percent of these patients will end up having this uh, this thing that we that you just talked about this CTEF or this chronic pulmonary hypertension uh, because there's actual death you know or there's actual injury there uh, scar tissue building up there in the pulmonary arteries. Um, and so the important thing there, and and again, not you know, we, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this, but the pulmonary arteries are actually compliant as well. Mm. Um, so if we think about the scarring with this, why it becomes important, uh, because as the pulmonary artery is compliant, um, a way, you know, think about anytime we want to reduce blood pressure, we just dilate the artery. So the pulmonary arteries, actually, we want them to be able to dilate. Uh, so if the pressure is going up, they can dilate, they can be compliant, they can dilate and lower the pressure. If you have a lot of scarring and you don't have that ability, then that pressure goes up and we have no way to dilate to relieve that pressure. Um, and then now, so we get into the thing that we all learned about in, uh, in EMT school is the Frank Starling effect. Mm. So if we remember Frank Starling effect is that the more a muscle stretches to a point, the more forcefully it can it can contract. Now, that's really great when we want a lot of cardiac output. So again, as another analogy, if we take that like a rubber band, the further we pull the rubber band back, the, the further it will shoot. But the further you pull it back over time, eventually it's going to lose its elasticity. And now it's not going to be able to forcefully contract at all. So that's what happens with the more chronic right side, right heart failure um, or right ventricular failure in that mm. chronic state. Um, and so these are the patients that will that will run on that have heart failure. Um, and that as we dig a little bit deeper, we may find that they have more of these uh, this chronic state of uh, of pulmonary embolus. Um, and so, you know, again, then just to understand um, you know, the pathophysiology uh, normally in the right ventricle uh, and how, you know, with this increase afterload, increase preload, uh, things just circle the drain very, very quickly. Um, and so imagine too, if you're in this chronic state and, or if you're in a, if you're in heart failure for another reason, if you're in right side heart failure for something else, and then you have a PE, well, now you've just completely lost all forms of compensation. And mm -hmm. so you're going to actually um, have hemodynamic collapse faster than someone with a uh, essentially a normal, healthy right ventricle. Mm. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, so since we now we know, you know, this is a pretty massive problem. Like this is, like you said, whenever you shared those numbers about stroke, cardiac arrest, and PE occurs more than both. I mean, that dude, that is significant. <clears throat> um, perhaps it would be good just to go ahead and transition to the uh, talking about the risk factors, you know, who is at high risk. Um, and thankfully, it's it's pretty easy because we know that the same patients that are at risk for DVT are at a high risk for PE. So I guess it'd be pretty good to uh, to kind of go over that. So patients essentially who, um, and this kind of lumps in with obstetrics, obstetrics as well, because you can uh, talk about cesarean sections with this as well, but any type of a surgery that's going to require post-operative intensive care. So major abdominal surgeries, anything to where, you know, your um, things like Whipple surgeries, anything like that 
also uh, hip and knee joint replacement surgeries. Um, but going into obstetrics, we're talking about cesarean section for the same thing, but also another issue with obstetrics is that we are at a hypercoagulable state, um, especially in late pregnancy. And similar to eclampsia, we have about a six week, uh, six week after childbirth to where the mother is still at risk for PE and DVT um, because the reproductive organs and everything else are trying to return to their original non-pregnant condition, so to speak. Um, yeah, and there's actually, I'll actually throw one more in there. Um, mm. During childbirth, oh, yeah. um, you can actually have uh, an amniotic embolism. Oh, good um, point. Those can be... Um, I, I believe nearly impossible to diagnose. It's more of a diagnosis by exclusion, mm. uh, but they are, um, they are lethal for the wow. most part. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. That's a really good, that's a really good point. Um, so, and, and then the obvious ones, you know, we want to think about limited mobility. So hospitalization, anytime that there's hospitalization, especially whenever it's coupled with something like a lower limb issue, uh, fractures or varicose veins uh, that, that have recently been operated on, um, any type of leg surgeries like we talked about knee uh, replacements, but you can also talk about you know, uh, grafting whenever we're repairing ACLs and tendons and things like that. Uh, so again, limited mobility. Um, hospitalizations. And obviously, if the patient has a history of any type of thromboembolism, you know, I guess, the, similar to a lot of illnesses and diseases, once you have it, essentially, you're going to be looking for it forever, uh, because it's going to be even easier for it to come back. Right. And especially if you have, you know, if you have a clotting disorder, the clotting disorders, but also congenital heart diseases, um, you know, unfortunately, any type of uh, any type of major risk factor, any cardiovascular risk factor puts you at risk for DVT and PE. So congenital heart diseases, heart failure, hypertension. Um, and again, you know, I know Jason kind of plugged it earlier, but that's the importance of of lifestyle changes and, you know, things to try to control our hypertension. Um, but even down to things that people don't think about that often, that is part of normal life now, um, oral contraception, hormone replacement therapy, or uh, adjunctive, you know, use of testosterone and things like that, you know, specifically athletes, you know, people who are and that's what you know, when Jason was talking about earlier, that there is no discrimination here, you know, anybody is at risk. This can attack young people. This can attack athletic people. Um, so folks who are taking testosterone or any type of estrogen use, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's 100%, you know, liable there. And then just, you know, some others that have, that have a lot of different disease processes at play, things like inflammatory bowel diseases, um, you know, things in, in within that realm um, talking about Crohn's disease and things like that, um, chronic dialysis use, um, myeloproliferative disease, uh, and also 
any type of patients with paroxysmal nocturnal diseases like you know COPD patients with chronic obstructive lung disease they may have some you know at night they're going to have issues breathing and sleeping so you know that that constant lack of sleep things like that are going to lead to an increased clotting ability so so that's a pretty long list maybe it would have it yeah. would have uh we would have gone a whole lot faster to say which ones, which people are not at risk. Cause this is literally <laughs> yeah. every single patient you ever come into contact with will have one of these risk factors. Yeah. So yeah. like maybe like a five-year-old doesn't have this. <laughs> Dude, it's terrifying. Although I did work with somebody one time that asked an eight-year-old if she had COPD. <laughs> are you kidding? Me? I guess technically she could have, but <laughs> that's just kind of like, trying to check all the boxes. Yeah. Um, you know, I think if we, uh, as I think through this, if we kind of put this into uh, something that you probably learned at, in school and never thought about again as Virchow's triad, mm, yep. um, if we just look at those, cause you know, and it, you know, as you, as you pointed out the, uh, the fractures, the surgeries and mm -hmm. those kinds of stuff. So, so it really comes down to uh, the, those that are at highest risk, fall into these three things of Virchow's triad, which is endothelial injury. So any, yep. um, any uh, surgery, anything invasive mm -hmm. automatically puts you in when you have this endothelial injury. And that's, uh, you know, that's simply just because of how the clotting cascade works. Um, the clotting cascade works off of injury. That's how it knows. That's how the body knows the clot. So you have Remember, you have your your pathways that that come in on what starts the clotting cascade, and endothelial injury is uh, is the, one of the biggest causes. In fact, um, you know, it's, I think it's also important to point out the difference between venous and arterial endothelial endothelium, mm -hmm. um, and the process happens similarly. But endothelial injury is actually um, the most thrombogenic uh, substance that we have in our body. Um, so anything with that is going to put you at a very, very high risk um, for uh, forming a thromboembolus. The, the, so, so endothelial injury, venous stasis. So, um, you know, as we know, uh, especially on the venous side, blood that's not moving quickly will tend to clot. This is mm -hmm. why, um, you know, people that sit for too long, um, you know, I know, uh, I know people, I know some, actually some doctors that uh, have, you uh, taken some blood thinners um some of the oral anticoagulants uh went on a long uh plane trip <laughs> Jeez. Um, well, fly fly internationally and you sit there for 12 hours um well and dude after reading through this and and getting ready for this episode i want to do it too <laughs> yeah it can be it can be dangerous um, so endothelial injury, venous stasis, and then the last one is hypercoagulability that we've kind of mm -hmm. talked about. So um, just one of these risk factors uh, puts you uh, into a pretty significant category, but go ahead and throw in a couple of these. Um, so, you know, you, I think, uh, you know, as we've made some scenarios, especially on the EMT student side, and you start saying, uh, oh, this is a, uh, a female that uh, has bilateral femur fractures um, and she's on birth control pills and she smokes mm -hmm. like, yeah. Okay. So those are kind of hitting all of the, <laughs> all of the big ones. But you know, the other thing I think that's important too is, is, uh, and we'll kind of talk more about this with the long-term treatment. Um, but a lot of times these patients, you know, it's not something new, you know, this is something they're being treated for. Um, so when we talk about things like the direct, 
novel or oral anticoagulants, you know, that the um, things like uh, Zorelto, Pradaxa, those kinds of things. Um, you're often going to find patients that are on these, but I think like in anything else, compliance on these medications becomes something mm. that's really important. Um, so, you know, as you're going through, you know, I can, I, you know, I, I think we could probably learn just as much about patients from the medications they take than, uh, than the interview that we do with them, because there's going to be a lot of stuff that they may even forget to tell you about. So they may forget to tell you that, you know, they kind of have this claudication that every time they walk up the stairs, their left leg hurts. Mm. And, uh, you know, they may not recognize that's a DVT, but if you find out, uh, you know, they've got a prescription for Xarelto, um, you know, that kind of is a piece of the puzzle. And then you can ask the questions, well, you know, when was the last time you took it? Have you missed, you know, and it's been, you know, it's been, um, you know, empty for two weeks. You know, these are all yeah. things that can, uh, I think, really help us kind of point towards uh, what could likely be happening. Absolutely. So that that kind of bridges, I think, into a really good wrap up for us. And what do you think is the most important piece or the most important tool that we have in order to suspect, uh, you know, PEs as a differential. Yeah, I think with these, uh, because we don't have the definitive diagnosis, um, you know, the CT scans and some of those labs, um, like anything else, we have to start with our high, our high index of suspicion, mm -hmm. going down our differential diagnoses and kind of, um, you know, eliminating things. Uh, you know, we're going to talk later about some of the diagnostic tools we have with, uh, you know, what does the EKG look like? But, mm -hmm. you know, with some of these, um, it has to be pretty bad to get EKG changes. Um, and as we start interviewing the patient and we start getting some of these uh, kind of putting these pieces, pieces of the puzzle together before they have their massive PE, before we get these EKG changes that we're going to talk about, um, I really think it's this focused interview mm -hmm. um, and this focused assessment um, that's really going to get us, uh, you know, we, the, the, you know, the other thing is um, we have to do something that we're not used to doing. You got to get your stethoscope out. Yes. I mean, Thank this is you. a lost, this is a lost art. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we can, we're going to talk later about also about, um, you know, point of care echocardiograms. Um, but again, it's got to be pretty bad for us to see it on echo. It's got to be pretty mm. bad for us to see it on EKG. So um, I really think it's the the important thing is having this high index of suspicion, going down these roads, asking the right question, um, and then communicating that, you know, if they get to the ED and they don't have to repeat all of this stuff, or they end up having the high index of suspicion, and they kind of start rolling on this PERT team, that's when we're going to see um, lives impacted. Absolutely. Very well said. I think that's that's a really good place to kind of put a pause button on this. Folks, um, we're going to dive into the diagnostics next next episode. We're going to jump into the diagnostics and some of our current treatments. So, yeah, don't miss it. You've been listening to MediClass Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.mediclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.